Just a few quick announcements from me before I dive into the message, and that is every year we as a church want to come before the Lord with a focused time of prayer and fasting. Now, we assume that we are praying and coming before the Lord regularly throughout the year, but sometimes we just need a bit of focused time and a focused time of attention, and so we're going to be commencing that next week's Sunday. Um, You know, one of the quotes that I've often shared here at church is, a church that does not pray is a church that's saying to God, God, we've got this from here. And while we, yes, we we work hard, we steward, we come before God and we try and be as excellent as we possibly can, we don't put our trust in ourselves. And if anything, the Holy Spirit can do more in one second of His sovereign power than we can with all of our best efforts. And so commencing next week, we're going to start coming before the Lord. We will bring you more details, but just be here so that you can be part of that. And then the way we end our week of prayer and fasting is with our vision week, which leads me to our second announcement, where we're going to be having our vision week and our GRM on the 25th of February. For those of you who don't know what our GRM means, that stands for our Growth Ring Meeting. Many of your businesses or maybe churches you've been part of before have an AGM, right? We call it GRM because just the the picture the Lord has given us for us as a church is that of an oak tree. And year on year, you can look at those oak rings and just see what the Lord has done. And also, we want to look ahead and see how we can partner with what God is doing. And so normally what we've done is had a slightly shorter service followed by a time of tea and coffee, and then people come back, and then we talk about just a few more details concerning the vision for the coming year, just what is God doing in some other areas of the church, for example, in our building project, and where are we there? We present our finances, we present our budgets, and um, it's usually been you know, high energy and um, kind of short and sweet. The biggest problem with it has been that if we're to take all people who come to Riverside over the course of a few weeks, we're looking at about 300, 350 people, but only about 60 to 80 people come to the GRM, which means that only a small percentage of the church are actually aware of what's going on with some of these ideas. So this year, we're going to do something different, and I hope this feels like an invitation for you and not a reason not to come on the 25th. But the way we're going to do it is that we're going to take our normal church meeting time, 9.30 to 11. We're going to have a time of worship. We're also going to have a time where we can look at some of these issues, look at our finances, look at our budgets, talk about some of these activities and realities of our church, and then have a time where we come before God's heart and God's word and share some vision all within an hour and a half, done in a way that really is saturated with who God is and saturated with the heart that God has for our church. So please make sure that you're here for this very important day that's following this week of prayer and fasting, which is so apt, I think, that we just really seek God's face and then we talk about the vision for the coming year. So that's on the 25th of February. So uh, let's go into just our time of um, preaching this morning and something we did a number of weeks ago, and I think it's important for us just to take our hearts and make sure that we remain in this attentive space is really this prayer that comes out of Scripture that says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Not speak, Steve, so I can hear what Steve has to say, but rather, what is God going to say to me? Let me listen out for his word. Let me listen out and be attentive to his voice. So can we say that together? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. One more time. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening.
All right, so we started a new series a number of weeks ago called All Things New, where I've been trying to put forward the case that Christianity is all about newness, not only at the beginning of the year when we're thinking about new budgets and New Year's resolutions, but rather for April, May, October, November, December, and for the rest of our lives and for eternity for that matter, Christianity is all about newness. But firstly, I want to help us wrap our minds around this by contrasting the kind of newness that I'm going to be speaking about, contrasting just something else that drives us, and that is novelty. You see, novelty is when I experience something for the first time, and and it's powerful, it's moving, it's emotional, and I get this kind of high. You know, when I was younger, I I was born in Johannesburg, and then we moved, when I was about seven years old, we moved to what's known as Port Elizabeth, and... um, you know, one of the first, one of the main beaches there in PE is a beach called Kings Beach. I haven't been there for about 20 years, so I don't know what's changed there. But when I was young, there were these public pools on the right-hand side with these silver water slides that went down into the pool. Now, for a seven-year-old from Johannesburg, even though the gradient was about five degrees with a few gentle turns, that was literally the funnest thing that I had ever experienced in my entire life. And my parents could not pull me away from those pools. Then I went to church and I went to school and I told all my friends about it and they thought it was so lame that I was getting so excited by these little slides. But I was a boy from Johannesburg and that was awesome for me. But at some point, the novelty wore off and I needed the next level of novelty. Now, for those of you who know Kings Beach, I don't know if it's still there, but I had to move on to the next slide, which was a proper big super tube. So now instead of climbing up four or five stairs, I'm climbing up multiple flights of stairs and there are just like multiple loops and and the speed is just so much faster. And even though the first time I went down, I went down in a seated position, which as you know, is the slowest way to go down a super tube. Now that was the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my life. And then the novelty wore off and then I figured out how to go down on my stomach and how to go down on my back. And then, you know, the real trick is to go down on your heels and your shoulder blades. And that's when you start hitting up the high curves and water splashing out the side. And that for me was now the new novelty and the new height of my experience. Uh, One of the other worlds that I think pushes us into novelty is the culinary world. Some of you have been to restaurants or seen these on TV or YouTube, these restaurants that serve kind of 8, 10, 12 course meals. And the reason behind that is novelty, because they know that the most exciting bite is the first bite. The next most exciting bite is the second bite, and then it kind of flatlines from there. So they want to provide 8, 10, 12, 15 course meals, each composed of one or two bites maximum. So they're just taking you from level to level, from novelty to novelty. Now novelty is not really a bad thing in and of itself because it is going to push us to new experiences. It is going to broaden our mind. It can bring great joy to our lives. Where novelty becomes dangerous is when in the in the endeavor of seeking novelty, new things for new things' sake, sometimes I lose the ability to enjoy some of the more stable things in my life. 
Sometimes I lose the ability to enjoy my marriage 15, 20, 25 years into my marriage. Enjoy some of the good things that God has already given me. Some of the creation that he's showing me every single day. And what we can so often do is medicate ourselves, medicate our boredom with novelty, leaving us shallow people. And then, of course, we bring that into the church. We're driven by novelty. We're driven by new experiences. And so we come to church and we want new experiences every single Sunday. And so we're always looking for the new experience. We're looking for the new book, the new author, the new worship team, the new song, the new video for me to click on. And when I get into a bit of what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction, I'm out because that's boring and I need novelty. And so I believe as we talk about all things new, I believe on one hand as God leads us into more of his newness, more of renewal, more of his new covenant, his new mercies, the new life in Christ, the kinds of things we've been speaking about, on one hand I do believe that on the road, we're going to experience some novelties. We're going to have some new and exciting experiences. And at the same time, I'm going to be journeying a road, a long obedience in the same direction, which doesn't mean it has to be boring. But rather, God is going to take me into deeper parts of my life. I'm going to realize that there are only superficial layers in my life that are experiencing the kingdom of God. And God is going to be teaching me what does it mean to move more of me and to move me more fully into the newness that he has for me. And sometimes that means Stephen dying to self so that parts of me can literally die and fall away to make space for God's new life. Now that is painful, that is hard, that is not linear. That is the long obedience in the same direction with some exciting experiences along the way. And so as we think about what are the new things God is going to be doing in my life, I really want to encourage us to this deeper, more powerful, more longer-lasting view of newness, bringing more of myself and more of God into more layers of my life. I believe if all we do is chasing novelty, it will leave us shallow and untransformed. And so I think today's verse is going to help us do exactly that. So let's turn to Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, a verse maybe many of you know fairly well, but let's read it together. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 to 18. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We're going to come back to what it means to look at people from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Today, we're going to learn about the new creation available to us. The old has gone, the new is here. All this, all this new creation work is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
So this passage starts off by talking about how we can often look at fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and sometimes even Christ himself, how it is so tempting to look at Christ and other people from a worldly point of view. And many of you might say, well, I don't look at people from a worldly point of view, but I believe that we actually do. At the heart of it, for many of us, when we ask ourselves, what is a Christian, and how do I kind of know if I'm in the world of what it means to be a Christian, many of us complete that answer by using worldly answers. Well, I kind of go to church when I can, I give when I can, I try and be a good person for the most part. You know, I don't know if I always agree with everything that Jesus says or everything His Word says, but you know, those things that I do agree with, I tend to hold quite dearly to me. You know, there's certain movies I do watch, certain kinds of music I do listen to, and there's other movies I don't listen to, and put that together, that kind of makes me a Christian. You know, uh, in the 90s, and some of you guys will know all about this, but in the 90s, the most well-known Christian was not Billy Graham, but was Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. And for those of you who know Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, he was the epitome of the description of a Christian from a worldly point of view. And so for many of us, we're not being conformed into the image of Christ, we're being conformed into the image of Ned Flanders. And our churches are filled with Ned Flanders because of what we think a Christian is and isn't how we define a Christian. And let me tell you from the beginning, a church full of Ned Flanders makes me so afraid. And then of course we kind of move that conversation into people who don't know Christ and then we start talking to them about what we think it means to be a Christian and often what, it, what we're trying to say to them is I want to make you more like Ned Flanders, and they see straight through it, and they're like, no, I don't want that. And to be honest, I don't want my non-believing friends to become Ned Flanders either. So if that's not what a Christian is, these sort of worldly ways of describing what a Christian is, what then is a Christian? And so I think looking at this verse is super helpful, and there's this phrase in verse 17 that says, if anyone is in Christ. Now, we talk about, you know, what is a Christian? Do you know that in Scripture, the word Christian is only used three times? Twice by people who aren't followers of Jesus, and only once by the Apostle Peter in his letters. Whereas the most common phrase to describe who we are is either some form of disciple or some form of followers of the way, but to look at this phrase, this phrase, in Christ, sometimes Paul will write, in him, meaning in Christ. Do you know that that phrase is used 180 times in Scripture? That tells me that this idea of being in Christ is super important. So what does it mean to be in Christ? And I think the core idea of this is not how many times I go to church, how much I give, how good of a person I am, which are all good things, they outcomes of this idea of being in Christ, but the core thing of what it means not to be a Christian from a worldly perspective, the heart is all in this idea to be in Christ. Now, to be honest, we could preach a whole year's worth of sermons unpacking these two words, in Christ. But let me try 
and give you my best shot at a definition. It's probably not you know, complete, but let me try a definition of what it means to be in Christ. And it is this. Someone whose identity has become united with the person, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Someone whose identity has become united with the person, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, even this definition is so full and we could go on, but what does it mean? Well, I believe it is my new identity is in Christ. My life is in Christ. His life is in me. All the benefits of who Christ is, what he has achieved, become mine, gloriously mine, by grace, meaning it's a gift. It's something he gives me, not something I earn. This includes eternal life, an experience of his love, his power. And then out of that, out of me being in Christ, come some of the behavioral changes, come some of the different choices I make in life including what it means to be part of this gathering called the church. Remember in primary school, you learned what collective nouns were? Uh, I, I learned this recently. Um, anyone know what the collective noun for crows? You know that blackbird, a crow? The collective noun of a crow is what? A murder of crows. That's pretty creepy, right? Anyone know what the collective noun of rhinos is? A crash. Who got that? A crash of rhinos. That's so apt. Anyone know what the collective noun of Christians is? A church. Church is simply the word that scripture uses to describe more than one Christian, more than one person who is in Christ. And as we are united in Christ, that word applied to us is church. In other words, church is so much more than this event I go to on a Sunday hoping that God notices and gives me brownie points for. Church becomes part of my identity. It is tied to who I am in Christ, but it is not an isolated individual thing. I am part of a whole lot of other people around the world and here in the south of Johannesburg who are also in Christ. And the word scripture uses to describe that group of people is the church, the body of Christ. And so even the idea of church comes out of being in Christ. Now, as I've said earlier, man, if I had to unpack these two words, we could be here forever and ever. So you'd have to change your lunch plans and, um, yeah. no, I'm joking. I'm just going to focus on what this passage focuses on, which I do believe gets to the heart of what a Christian is. It says, therefore, because now we're not regarding people from a worldly perspective, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's those two words, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Now, in some of your phones or in some of your Bibles, you will see a little footnote, a little D or an E, and if you go and look at what that says, that leads you to a slightly different translation, which we get in the ESV, for example. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Just a different way of saying the new creation has come. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so one of the main central ideas of what it means to be in Christ is this idea of becoming a new creation or someone in whom the new creation has come. 
And this new creationness, I'm hoping you're following the logic here, this new creationness, this new creation coming in me and through me and transforming me is because I am in Christ. Now, just bear with me as I geek out on a little bit of theology, but I love it. I think it's so important, and so I hope that you get this. How is it that my new creation-ness comes from being in Christ? You see, when God created in Genesis chapter 1, He created everything, and He said, this is good. So God's creation was good, and God's creation was saturated with His presence, His power, and His good love. And we see that in how Adam and Eve related to creation, related to God, related to one another. But that didn't last too long because we turn over the page, we get to Genesis chapter 3 where sin entered the world. Now most of us think of sin as kind of the bad things that I do. And that is absolutely part of it. Somehow, and those who do not believe in God have no explanation for this, Why is it that humanity is capable of so much greatness and so much goodness and so much horror? Why is it that on repeat, humanity is just so deeply impacted by selfishness, sin, violence, pride, godlessness, weakness, brokenness, and perversion? It's because of Genesis chapter 3. But not only were you and I impacted by sin, the entire creation was impacted by sin which is why we have diseases, violence, mosquitoes, natural disasters, mosquitoes, (laughs) droughts, mosquitoes. Man, the new creation ain't gonna have any mosquitoes as far as I'm concerned. And so that's the world we live in. We live in a fallen creation. All you need to do is read the news. So Jesus comes onto the scene, and not only does Jesus, I'm going to just use a phrase, and I hope you get it, not only does Jesus live Eden out among us, meaning, not only does does Jesus demonstrate to us what Eden should be like, God among us, us walking with God who is among us, a man fully submitted to the love and the presence and power of God. Someone who is experiencing pure fellowship with his Father in heaven. And how that impacts his relationships with those around him. Not only did Jesus live that perfectly, but he also went around turning things around. Taking things that were wrong and making them right. Taking trees that bore no fruit and causing them to bear fruit. Walking on water, showing that he's in charge of the very oceans that seek to consume us, bringing healing to people, bringing dignity to people who are treated as outcasts, bringing healing and power and forgiveness to us, also that we could experience, oh, this is what the kingdom of God is actually about. Not only did Jesus do all those things, but on the cross, like a lightning rod, he absorbed the full power of all this evil, all this shame, all this violence, all of this oppression, all that stands against the goodness of God. Jesus absorbed onto himself to the point of physical death, 
three days later, rising from the grave. One of the ways the scriptures define this new moment is that Jesus is now the first fruits of new creation. Now, even if you don't farm, I'm sure you're familiar that everything doesn't come in one go. All the apples don't come on day one. We will have what we call the first fruits. And what does first fruits mean? First fruits mean more fruit is coming. But Jesus is described, the resurrected Jesus is described as the first fruits of all creation. And so what's going on here is new creation is not just simply about going to heaven one day, whatever that means. New creation isn't just about the place that I go when I die or when Jesus returns. Rather, in the biblical imagination, new creation has penetrated this broken creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of new creation. And when we are in Him, now the description gets passed on to us. We too are now in Christ. Therefore, we are now part of the new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means we are in Christ. And one of the features of what that means is we are new creation. We are part of the new thing that God has done and is doing and will bring to completion. Which is why I've been saying for four weeks now, the heart of Christianity is about newness. And today it's about new creation. So let's boil it down. What does this practically look like? And I'm going to go through some of these features super fast. And I, I'm, I'm only giving kind of a few limited concepts here, but we really could go on here. But the first thing is that new creation gives us a new destination. And the way that I want to say it this morning is that New creations inherit the new creation. I spoke about how Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. He is the first fruits of the new creation. But we still have the old broken creation around us. Now the time will come. The king is coming, that first song that we sang. The time will come when the king returns and he will make all things new. What is true of a garden in Eden, what is true of Christ, and what is true of his people will become true of the entire universe. Jesus will bring renewal and new things to the entire cosmos, which is why the scriptures speak way more about new creation than where I go when I die. And in order to help us enjoy this new creation, Jesus will judge and Jesus will purge all things that stand against his good life. And he has demonstrated that by how he lived out his ministry and by defeating death and sin on the cross. So we can know that this is our future. And so who gets to be part of this new creation? Well, those who are new creations in the old creation, get to inherit the new creation. Now, when I use the word inherit, where do we get that word from? You see, Jesus is the Son of God, and it is normally the firstborn sons that inherit, right? And so Jesus is the one who inherits the kingdom of the Father. 
Jesus is the one who through his obedience earned the kingdom, not you and me, but because we are in Christ by virtue of who he is and what he has done, we become, and this sounds scandalous, we become co-heirs of Christ. In other words, we co-inherit what he inherits. And so, as new creations, we get a new destination. We also get a new purpose because it's not just about where I go when I die. It's not just about what happens to this world when Jesus returns. It's about today, and it's about through you, a new creation, how much more of God's new creation, how much more of God's renewal, how much more of God's kingdom can be part of this world today, which is why Jesus prays and teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done, not in a thousand years from now, today. And so as new creations, we have new purpose so that more of God's new creation, more of his reign, more of his rule, more of his life, more of his love, more of his power become a reality in us and with us and through us today. And that becomes our higher purpose. As new creations, we also get a new identity. Another verse many of us know quite well, Galatians 2.20. I, Stephen, have been crucified with Christ. What happens when you're crucified? You die. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Why? Because he's the new creation. He's the resurrection. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My new identity is in Christ. Now, I know that phrase can go out there, and it's like, Stephen, that sounds like I should be saying amen, hallelujah. I just don't know what that means. Let me try to help you out there. That means I'm no longer defined by my failures. I'm no longer defined by my sin. I'm no longer defined by my weakness, by the way I see myself or the way others see me. I'm no longer defined by my false self, the self that I project for others to see. I'm no longer defined by what people said about me in high school, things parents have said about me, things teachers have said about me. I'm no longer defined by the fact that I feel like I need to live up to the so-called perfections of Instagram or YouTube or Hollywood. Rather, my identity is in Christ, which means as the Father loves the Son, so He loves me. That is who I am. I have a new identity in Christ as a new creation. I also have new character. You know, the way that the Bible speaks about this, it kind of flips it around. Today we've been talking about being in Christ. The Scriptures also talk about Christ being in me. A verse some of us know very well is Colossians 1, verses 27, which talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Stephen, how does that work? Well, one metaphor that's helped me is just like I am in the air and the air is in me, so I am in Christ and he is in me. And both are such beautiful, glorious, powerful truths. 
Some of you have heard about what the scriptures call the fruits of the spirits, love, peace, patience, and so on and so forth, self-control. That is nothing less than the character of Christ being formed in me. Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you as a new creation. I am in him and he is in me and his character brings new life to my character. I also have new desires. Ezekiel, written hundreds of years before Jesus, but looking forward to this time, says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I have new desires, things that I used to consider boring or, you know, those weird Christian freaks are now deep and valuable truths to me. Jesus becomes the treasure of my heart. Knowing him becomes the most important thing to me. And all of my decisions are guided by that. What is going to move me deeper into a knowledge of Christ? And then I want those things. And I don't want the things that move me away from that. Man, I could go on and I could talk about new love. I could talk about new power. And I could talk about new life. But I want to stop here and I want to ask you a question. Hands up if you dare. Who here is fully living out the fact of being this incredible new creation? Who is completely governed by new desires? Whose character has been so thoroughly transformed by the person and character of Jesus Christ? Who can say I'm living wholly for God every single day? Who here can say that I have no more weakness, no more doubts, no more character defects, no more besetting sins, no more materialism, no longer being distracted by the things of this world. I'm no longer bored by the things of Christ. Can anyone put their hands up to that? Because I can't. If anything, here's a life verse, for, <laughs> I think for all of us, Romans 7:19. for I do not do the good thing I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, somehow this I keep on doing. How's that for a verse of the day? We could have it as verse of the day every single day. But here's what I want to say about that. While I believe Romans 7 verses 19 is our reality, it is not our identity. There is a massive difference between adopting this verse as my identity. Oh, well. Ugh, I tried. You know, I don't know if I'm getting this thing. I'm out. And just there's a decreasing return of just effort and joy and life in Christ. Whereas when I recognize that 2 Corinthians 5.17 is my identity, yes, I wake up and I say, Lord, I am a new creation. Your new creation life is available through me and in me and to me today. And Lord, would you transform my desires? Would you give me new purpose? May I be conformed to the image of Christ today. And then you might get to the end of the day and read Romans 7, 19 and go, oh man, didn't go as I planned. 
But then I wake up the next day because that's not my identity. Lord, today is another day of new mercies, new compassions with you, a new opportunity to live in this new creation that you are. And that is where this long obedience in the same direction comes from. You know, another verse that Jesus often talks about, he mentions it once, but I think it is pretty important when he talks about, in John chapter 3, being born again. So who here, coming out of the womb, who here could do trigonometry? Who here coming out of, I saw Brian's hand up there. Wow, Brian, come speak to us. All right, who here could come out and run a business? Who here came out of the womb, Craigie, with a scratch handicap in golf? No one. What happened is we had to start right at the beginning. I've got this new life, but I have to start over here, and then I've got to move somewhere, and the same is true with regards to our spiritual life. At some point, I am born again, but I'm not fully formed. I am a new creation in Christ, but now I've got a whole journey of being and becoming. That's identity and formation, being and becoming, identity and formation, being and becoming the new creation God has made me to be. At this stage, if I can ask just some of the team, if you can come on the stage. Now, we sang the song earlier, you are my all in all. And I love how that song just reflects the heart of today's message. That we don't just want 10% of Christ and we don't just simply want to give 10% of ourselves to Christ. Rather, I want more of His life. More of His new creation to transform me in deeper parts of my identity, choices, life, and purpose. Some of you may know the song, Amazing Grace, written by a man by the name of John Newton. And he was a slave trader. And he would say of himself, I was a violent, racist, horrible human being. But as he got powerfully saved and transformed, he wrote this song. But one of the things he said later on in life is this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so can I ask you to stand and we're just going to have an opportunity to respond to God this morning. And in particular, I want to put out the contrast between the difference between what it means to be a Christian from a worldly point of view versus what it means to be in Christ and be a new creation. I believe there are some of us here this morning. For you, this is like you've never heard this before. Christianity always felt like to you, just go to church more and try to be a better person. And that just sounded so unattractive. <laughs> but now you've heard something different. And some of you are saying, oh wow, there is a different heart 
to what it means to be, and I'm going to use the word a Christian. And wow, I actually want that. Because I know the things that my heart truly desires have not been given to me by anything in this world or by anything else I've given my heart and life to. And so for some of you, this is a massive fork in the road. And the Lord is inviting you to this reality so that you become His and He becomes yours. And maybe today is a day of new birth, something brand new. I think there are also many of us here who at some level you may say, look, Stephen, I really do think I am a Christian. I do believe that I have stepped into faith. However, man, like those trolleys that always go one way, just something in me always defaults to seeing myself and seeing Jesus from a worldly point of view. And I reject that. Jesus, take me to the heart. Become my all in all. Maybe today is a fresh opportunity for you to invite more of Jesus' life and his new creationness into you so that in you and through you more of his new creation is made manifest in this world. Maybe some of you are impacted by one of these areas we spoke about. Maybe it's character. Stephen, you know, I really do believe I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I'm fully submitted to the new creation life of God in my character. Maybe it's your choices. Maybe it's purpose. Maybe it's the desires of your heart. And today's an opportunity to invite Jesus to be your all in all, which requires great surrender. So church, let's use the song, the words of the song to respond to him.